I'm a party planner. That's what I do. Hallmark Channel presents one of the 12 all-new premieres of Christmas. It was supposed to be a holiday celebration, but it became... I see you've met Nick. He's going to be helping out for the holidays. The best Christmas party ever. Wow. This is amazing. Are you crushing on this guy? No! Tori DeVito, Steve Lund. Merry Christmas, Nick. Merry Christmas, Jenny. An all-new premiere, Saturday, December 13th at 8 on Hallmark Channel, the heart of TV. Oh boy, guys, we've got a good one. Best Christmas party ever. They mean it. They do. Uh, It's Emily of the Feminine Critique, again here with a solo stocking stuffer. Uh, And I want to start, you you heard the trailer, and obviously you kind of know what you're getting. It is one that hits on most of the points we need. A prime example of the cozy cardigan Christmas that we have come to know and love, or Stockholm Syndrome love, however you want to say it. Um, And I want to start with the reason I sought this one out. Uh, I was doing a lot of Googling of different, doing some research on these movies for a project I'm doing, and I came upon an IMDb user review for this movie, and I'm going to read it out loud to you because I found it inspiring. Okay, so the review comes courtesy of a user named Ted PHX, uh, who titles his review, As far as Christmas movies go, this is as good as they get. 10 stars out of 10. Here's what I really liked about Best Christmas Party Ever. Everybody looked great. And I mean everybody. There were no bad guy caricatures, and the plot was coherent, reasonably believable, and the ending made it all a satisfying fairy tale. The only Christmas movie I can recall liking better than this is Crazy for Christmas, starring the magnificent Andrea Roth. But I could easily come to regard this one as an equal, and Tori DeVito as magnificent as well. Here's my favorite part. If you think It's a Wonderful Life rates a 10, best Christmas party ever is at least a 20. Thank you, Ted. Uh, You led me to turn on my cable and search to see if Best Christmas Party Ever would be airing this holiday season, and sure enough, it is, and it was, and you should all watch it, because it's the prime example of everything about these movies. Made for Hallmark, oh, obviously it's made for Hallmark. It is such a Hallmark made-for-Christmas movie. Directed by John Bradshaw, who, uh, as you would expect, has done a lot of these movies, including one that I unironically really liked and would recommend to people that really do just want a like sweet, good-natured Christmas movie. Uh, that movie was called Cancel Christmas, and it stars Judd Nelson as Santa Claus, and I know what you're thinking, um, but it's actually a very nice story about how... Oh, like somehow Santa Claus basically is, there's a legal team that's saying he's like void in contract or something. So he has to go to earth and has like a month to get this like one kid that's a non-believer to believe in the spirit of Christmas. And then he can be Santa Claus again, which sounds really stupid. And the setup is, but it's ultimately a story about these, like this like 14 year old kid who then ends up befriending this other like 14 year old kid. And the other kid I think is in a wheelchair. And so it's kind of like, it's not about uh, saving anything. It's more just about getting these two teenage boys like to be friends. And it's actually really sweet. Uh, and again, I'm not saying this meanly, like it actually is one of, I think, 
the best of these movies that I've seen. Unlike Best Christmas Party Ever, which despite what Ted PHX is going to uh, lead you believe, is, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not calling it bad. It's exactly what these movies are, and it just embraces everything about them. Uh, so let me give you a quick rundown. Uh, Tori DeVito, who you would know, or I mean, a, a lot of you would know, uh, is primarily known for Pretty Little Liars, where she plays Melissa Hastings, Spencer's older sister, who um, kind of once buried somebody alive, but that doesn't, it, it's fine. She's she's good now. It's all good. Um, so she plays a character named Jenny, and Jenny is a party planner, which is like a really stressful job in New York City, I guess. Although not stressful that where she doesn't have time to shop designer clothing that fits her impeccably, because this girl's wardrobe in this movie uh, is impressive. So Jenny is devoted to her job, and she works for this company owned by a woman named Petra, and Petra announces that she's retiring. So it's like, ooh, so who's going to inherit the company, eh? And Jenny has been working really hard and doing really well, so she's convinced it's going to be her. But wrench thrown in the plan, because Petra introduces her son, Nick, to everybody. Nick is a handsome, uh, bland love interest. We're going to get to him. I have so much to say about him. Uh, and he was trying to be an actor in LA and just has not had good luck and is about to give it up. So he came out to help Petra for the Christmas season, but also maybe try things out and maybe take over the company, which of course hurts Jenny because she feels like she's worked for it and she's owed it. Uh, so at first they don't get along. Shocking, I know, because they're both really attractive. So you'd think that naturally attractive people get along together because their instinct is to breed and make attractive babies. Not the case. Very quickly, they do. So then, don't worry, they will make attractive babies. Uh, so there is a bit of a plot. Uh, the main thing being the company's biggest account every Christmas is a toy store. And this is like one of those really special Home Alone 2-esque toy stores where it means a lot to a lot of people. It represents Christmas, all this stuff. Jenny has a very strong uh, connection to it because when she was a little girl, the company always had like a big Christmas party for everybody, uh, including poor children. And Jenny's dad had lost his job, but they were still allowed to go to this Christmas party. And while there, Jenny asked Santa to get her dad a job. Santa was actually the CEO of that company who liked to play Santa. And so he actually gave her dad a job and her dad worked there. Uh, so it's a very like deep place to her and she's excited. She gets to plan the party for it. But the new guy in charge of this company's party relations, who is an attractive man who um, immediately essentially just sexually harasses Jenny and she's totally cool with it because he's attractive. If he was not, things would be a very different movie. So, he's uh he wants to do things differently or he's telling her that his company wants to do things differently it's usually this whole charity thing and they invite children and so she has this whole plan and he's like yo no we need a vip room we need a champagne room uh no there's no room for you know dirty orphan children to come into this space so it's a bit of a conflict uh Jenny and Nick decide they're going to go wild and plan their own separate party with the help of the CEO who once gave her dad a job, who owned the company, but sold the company years ago. But he still does Santa Claus and he hears a story and he's like, of course I'll help. So uh, he is helping with these two to plan the titular best Christmas party ever. Uh, and of course there are some other obstacles um, and uh, spoiler alert, 
it all ends happy and well. And I think these two kids, I think they're going to go on to make beautiful babies. So now that you know what you need to know, uh, why don't we delve into the 10 tropes of uh, Cozy Cardigan Christmas, beginning with our lead in need of a lesson. And here we kind of have a combination of type A and type B, because Jenny is a workaholic. Uh, We also know she's uptight because her friend says to her when she's putting up her Christmas tree, you're even uptight about the Christmas tree, which obviously means she needs to loosen up. Uh, now, Jenny is played by Tori DeVito. Like I said, she's uh, been, she was also on Chicago PD, Chicago Hope, Chicago Fire, Chicago Land, Chicago Sewage System. I don't know. One of the many Dick Wolf Chicago shows. And uh, she's a perfectly capable actress. Uh, I was curious about her past, so I looked her up. And I have to say, this this made me happy. You, most of you may know, I am I am from the grand land of Long Island, and we have a couple of rules about Long Island that I know I've said on the show before, and one of them is that every Long Islander has some kind of, had some kind of personal interaction or relationship with either, and or usually all three, Billy Joel, Dee Snyder, and um, Tony Danza. Tony Danza's uh, best friend was my music teacher in middle school, um... The uh, Dee Snyder's niece was a student at a pre-K my mom used to teach at, and my dad's convinced he saved Billy Joel's career, but these are all stories for another day. Uh, Tori DeVito, I'm very happy to say, was born and raised in Long Island, in the town of Huntington, which is a very nice town, and in true Long Island form, her father was Billy Joel's drummer. So I am now a... Tori DeVito, Melissa Hastings fan, because I feel like we have a connection. Uh, So, you know, Jenny needs to loosen up. Uh, You know, she is described as being empowered and independent, and I think that's supposed to be a bad thing, uh, because then another character says, oh, that just means you carry a lot of stress and have a hard time having fun. Yeah, that's exactly what every empowered, independent woman is really, really, she's just kind of um, a stuck-up bitch, is what you're saying, who uh, doesn't enjoy life. And it's weird because, you know, as quote-unquote uptight as the movie says she is, she's pretty um, okay with really inappropriate flirtation in the office. So this client that she's wooing, just like on their first client meeting, he says, I'm going to take you to dinner. And she's like, oh, okay. Fucking sexual harassment that is rampant in all of these movies where when you have a career woman, uh, so long as the client is apparently attractive, it's totally okay for him to just not talk about her work and talk instead about how he's going to get her, or instead just he brings her roses and says, well, we should talk about this over a drink. Like, when you watch Mad Men and a character does that, you squirm, right? You think like, ooh, that's that's gross, that's wrong, treat this woman like an equal, don't always treat her like a potential bedmate. And in this movie, not true. And the movie I'm currently watching, which I'll review in a, in a few episodes, uh, does the same thing. As If you are an attractive woman and you have clients in these movies, that means it is okay for the client to expect sex with you. Uh, it, it's actually kind of really pissed me off about these ones. But, you know, I'm getting a little tense about best Christmas party ever. So now number two, which of course is our setting. And in this case, our setting is New York City. 
we know that it's New York City because they open the movie with establishing shots of the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building. And about five minutes later, um, there's an exterior thing. So they show again Empire State Building and, and so on. Oh my God, they reuse the same stock establishing shots about eight times in this movie. I would say this movie's running length is probably about 90 minutes. Um, 15 minutes of those are spent to just overhead shots of the skyline. And it gets better. This, again, is one of those quote-unquote New York movies that really, really adorably tries to quote-unquote be New York. Uh, We get the establishing shots, obviously. We get, you know, this toy store. It's just supposed to kind, kind of be like an F.A.O. Schwartz kind of thing. And it's obviously just not New York. Uh, at one point, you see Jenny's apartment. And now, granted, they don't specifically say she lives in Manhattan. Maybe she lives in Queens or, you know, there, there are certain parts of the city where you can live and work in the city. But, you know, you're actually, you, you can live in like a house-like spot but unless she's living in staten island that is not any house that would be anywhere in the major boroughs of manhattan there are stairs behind her that is not a new york city based apartment uh so there's that but the best thing about this movie and once again i think you hear sirens outside my window this is what new york sounds like not the silent clean new wow there's a lot of sirens out there uh it's, this is just this is how I live, okay? I'm not a party planner. I don't have a beautiful home with stairs. Okay, I think I think they passed. I, I don't think they found me, so good on that. Uh, the best New York thing about this movie is, at one point, Nick and Jenny, when he's, she's starting to warm up to him, he says, let's go get lunch. And they walk outside, and you know what they do, of course. They go to a hot dog cart. First of all, um, I, I don't know that I've, I'm trying to realistically think one time in my life have I had a hot dog from a hot dog cart in New York and it was sure enough, like I was in college and I was hungry in Central Park and I was like, you know, I wonder, maybe I'm, I'm just going to get a hot dog. And I did. And it did not taste very exciting. And that was the one time I had a hot dog. I don't think I know any New Yorker that actually goes to a hot dog cart and gets like an actual hot dog from one. But in this movie, they do it about eight times. Uh, yeah, there's several scenes of them getting hot dogs from the hot dog cart. And it's... So So then they, they sit there not eating the hot dogs because these are very skinny, attractive actors. They're not eating hot dogs. But the movie does... Uh, it almost... I, I got to a point where I was just watching it and my mouth was watering and I was just screaming eat the hot dog eat the fucking hot dog take a bite because they were so um it's like a movie where somebody is hidden like let's say in a closet right and the bat the um you know somebody's like looking for not looking for them because the person's hiding and they don't know they're there but they're just walking around talking to the character that knows where they are and they just keep trying to prevent it and it's like every like five seconds the guy almost opens the door and you're just in there like oh my god oh my god don't open the door and this was me saying just eat the hot dog oh my god they're gonna eat the hot dog they put it towards the- no they didn't eat it every time every time they would put get it so close and at one point the guy does take a bite of the bread and then promptly probably threw up 12 times uh, this also does something that I would like to address regarding hot dogs in movies. I, movies treat hot dogs very sexually. 
And I get why in terms of its, you know, phallic symbol and all that, but it's never treated that way. It's always treated as a character eating a hot dog inevitably gets mustard, rarely ketchup, usually mustard, on their uh, cheek. And then the other character has to do that gentle, like, oh, you have something on your, on your, oh, no, I just, I'll, I'll get it. And they, like, put their two fingers on their face and, like, gently wipe it off. Is that a sex thing? Is it a fetish thing? Are there a lot of people out there where that's a huge turn on? Because a lot of movies do it, this one being one of them. These movies are usually so chaste and tame uh, about suggesting anything sexual. And this whole movie, the whole time, I'm like, uh, uh, something weird sex- weird sexual energy is going on here. And it's making me uncomfortable watching it. This is a TVG movie. Anyway, uh, number three. Let's move on, because I have a lot to say about our bland love interest. So the character of Nick is not quite your typical bland love interest, because he is not a poor little rich boy. He's not a, uh, you know, single dad. He is somewhere in between, because he is kind of a failed actor, which you don't see often, so that's good. We need to talk about the actor. It is, he is played by Steve Lund, who some of you might remember from the first stocking stuffer of this year, Christmas Incorporated, where I think I described him as something like uh, less interesting than a coffee table. He he had absolutely no inflection the entire movie. He just seemed like he was told to say things, and that's how he, is, how he acts. So, best Christmas party ever starts, and I'm feeling the same kind of energy. I'm like, oh my god, I don't know if I could take this guy. And then he starts, like, having fun. Like, he starts getting kind of wacky, or at least whatever Steve Lund's definition of wacky is, where he's kind of gets to joke around, he gets to be a little goofy, but it's still... It, I, I watched a Misha Barton horror movie a while back where she plays a stalker, kind of psychotic uh, girl obsessed with her ex-boyfriend, so she kidnaps his girlfriend and all this stuff. And you could tell that Misha Barton thought she was really, really pushing it and going far and giving it her all and giving, like, a um, like Rose McGowan jawbreaker just going for an anger movie. And she wasn't. I mean, she was. She was doing as much as she had the ability to, but that's still not the ability of a good actor. And that's kind of what Steve Lund was here. And this is very important. You guys, if you were eagle-eared, you might remember what I said in the in that episode was my theory of how Steve Lund became an actor was that he was in high school and maybe... Um, was failing English or maybe got injured, right? He was a, an athletic kid and got injured and he had a kind teacher that encouraged him to try out for the school play. And because there weren't a lot of other like guys that came out for the play, he got the part and then he was like the star of his school in town. I don't like to brag, but holy fuck am I good. I would like to read for you, courtesy of IMDb, the mini bio of one Steve Lund. <clears throat> A proud native of Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, Steve was inspired at an early age to pursue a passion for performance after taking part in an elementary school production of The Lion King, a play where, according to his account, he stole the show. However, like many kids from his part of the world, playing hockey took precedent over all, and he began a lengthy affair with the sport. 
It wasn't until his late teens, while playing competitively competitively in his hometown, that injuries began to plague his future with the game. Steve then considered his first love, and, fostered by the overwhelming support from his beloved community, made a bold choice to abandon hockey and head west to attend the Vancouver Film School acting program. From day one, he felt as though he had made the right choice. Steve says, the only advice, I'm trying to do his voice, the only advice I've ever been able to give truthfully is, do what you love. Guys, mic, I'm not holding a mic, the microphone's attached to my earpiece, so I can't drop it, but if I could, I'd be dropping that fucking mic right now. I will say one really clever thing about how they use the the actor in this is that, um, so he's playing an actor, very meta of them, and his big, like, his last big hurrah and chance at stardom is that he gets, he's getting callbacks for a soap opera, which on one hand is perfect because this is the kind of actor, like, that's what he was born to do. He was born to be on a soap opera and have millions of housewife fans and do conventions and that to be his career. The other funny part of that is that this movie, I think, was like 2014 or 2013. It's not that old. Um, There's like two soap operas still on the air right now. Days of Our Lives and The Young and the Restless. I think one or two may be a web series somewhere, but are they still making soap? Like, you shouldn't be that excited about soap opera work anymore. Moving on. Number four, montage. I was worried, but thankfully this movie in its last quarter did give us one, and it's a great one. It's a very short one, but it's totally montage. Uh, It is a party planning montage, which is in my list of montages. Obviously, my favorite is the um, girls trying on clothing, because I love a good trying on clothing montage. Second is the we're planning a party montage, and this is a party planning montage. Uh, And it's also like really in 10 seconds, they cram a lot of party planning, or they think they do. Uh, So they have, like, her standing and pointing at things. They have Steve Lund, like, holding a, I don't know, big tray of food. And then they have the old man, who we'll get to because he's an important character, uh, the owner of the toy company, Mr. Tyrell. And he's unpacking toys because he's been able to get companies to donate toys for needy children. And he opens up, like, a stuffed bear. And it's not, like, it's a big stuffed bear, but it's not, like, man-sized. It's probably child's full-size child. And he looks at this bear and he's like playing with it. And he's just, Jenny, you gotta see this. Like this was the most exciting thing that has ever happened to this man was this man who worked for a toy company, who owned a toy company. Nothing in his life has ever beat opening a box and finding a slightly oversized teddy bear. It's kind of sweet in its own way. Number five, dead parents. Yep. We do have dead parents. Uh, We don't find out anything about her mother, but her father is like, you know, (laughs) like in in a creepy way, she keeps talking about him and how, you know, they were very close. That's sweet. That's fine. I'm not saying that's creepy. But when she says the line, I think I'm single because I know why. I compare every man to my father and nobody will ever match him. That's a little creepy. I, I'm, I mean, I don't know. Dudes, you tell me. If you met a girl and and you said, like, well, why is it taking you so long to settle down? And she's like, because nobody's as good as my daddy. Wouldn't you be creeped out? I'd be very creeped out. The same way if, if a guy said that about his mother. Uncomfortable. Uh, but yes, her father was the one who taught her Christmas spirit, and now he is dead. Number six, our sassy sidekick. Uh, we do get, um, Jenny has a friend named Nat 
who sort of looks like the poor man's Amanda Seyfried, because she's got these giant saucery eyes, and she's supposed to be arty, like she's the graphic designer who's going to help design things. She's not overly sassy, and she doesn't wear big earrings, but she is there to just basically um, tell Jenny that she's great, and she should, you know, uh, go after Nick. Number seven, the evil woman. Pleasant twist here. So, uh, Nick does have a girlfriend, uh, kind of like, he's like, Oh, my friend's coming. And, you know, and she of course is, is very attractive and even like keeps making things, comments about how she's an actress and she does yoga and that. And that's become kind of like the, another trigger of these movies, another sign. Like it used to be what if you wanted, um, if you wanted to make your woman look evil, you gave her a cell phone, right? She was a workaholic. A good way to make a woman seem like um, an evil rival is she's good at yoga. Because that's one of those just intimidating things. And women hate other women that do yoga, apparently. But credit to this movie, they don't make her um, a, an actual rival or villain. You know, she she's there a few times. But then... Uh, at one point, she basically says to Jenny, oh, by the way, you know Nick did something really nice for you. And Jenny's like, oh, uh, that's good. And then uh, Yoga Girl says, yeah, I, I, he must be really interested in you. And Jenny's like, oh, but aren't you together? And Yoga Girl kind of gifts him to her for Christmas, I guess. Because she basically says, like, oh, well, you know, you're, um, uh, you know, it's, it's clear that uh, he he really likes you, and you know we're good friends, and it's fine. Like I, you know, Nick and I can still be friends, and I I want what's best for both of you. So it's kind of sweet in its own way. Um, so that's you know, there's no real evil woman. There is a villain. I would say that the guy who is inappropriately hitting on um, Spencer Hastings' sister the whole time is villainous. Uh, there's another like kind of quieter villain in this, which is the soap opera that Nick has auditioned for so he gets the part and he finds out he has to fly to LA on Christmas Eve in order to do wardrobe fittings so whoever is running this soap opera and makes their staff because it's not just like the actors it's also okay the costume people have to work late Christmas Eve to fit the new guy for his suit it's an odd it feels villainous. I'm, I'm just going to say that. Number eight, slapstick. Um, not particularly that I caught, uh, again, just so much, will they or won't they eat that hot dog? Uh, that in itself I found kind of tense in a slapsticky way, but I won't count it. Number nine. Whew, sit down, folks. This is a, this is a long Sage old people is typically like an in-out, right? At uh, Okay, we have 20 minutes left. Quick, wheel out uh, grandma so she can give some wisdom to our lead. We get... All right, so there are two sage old people in this movie who are going to be important here. One is Mr. Tyrell, who I mentioned before, and he is retired, but he still plays Santa Claus. And the other is Petra, who is retiring, who uh, runs this, owns this company and runs it. And so she gives a speech to Nick when Nick is kind of asking whether or not he should take this job or stay with this job. And she, um, her speech is essentially, well, I've lived a lot and I've learned a lot of lessons and 
Uh, sometimes you have to let go of your dreams. She, What she's trying to do, she's trying to get him to stay at her company. She wants him to take it over. So she really kind of says, like, you know, I, I had other dreams and I learned to let them go because they weren't right for me. So she's really saying, like, dude, you can't act. Don't go to L.A. But in a way, it is sage advice because he's, like, yeah, it's, it's, he's, he's probably a better party planner than he is an actor. Both the actor and the character. Then she turns around and gives similar sage advice to Jenny. I don't even remember what it meant. It was just another scene where everything got quiet and music played in the background. And she, you know, kind of gave, talked, and Jenny stared at her and a tear welled up in her eye. Then you have Mr. Tyrell, who, like, comes back and forth and just keeps giving out wisdom to these characters that probably don't need to hear it. Uh, And, of course, he does the great thing that happens in these movies where... You know, Jenny says, you know, thank you, Mr. Tyrell. And he says, no, thank you. You've taught me so much. I don't know what she taught him, but good on everybody. Everybody has learned a lot, apparently. And number 10, Santa Claus. Now, we don't have a real Santa Claus, but kind of we do, if you want to think about it. Because as Jenny says in the very beginning of the movie, she asks Santa to give her dad a job. And technically, Santa Claus, he might not have been the real Santa Claus, but he was a man playing Santa Claus, gave her dad a job. So, I'm going to count that as a Santa Claus. So I think we do have 8 out of 10, like 7.5, depending on the sassiness level of the Amanda Seyfried clone. But we get plenty of bonuses. The public domain holiday song. So they decide to make the party a Nutcracker themed party, which means all of the different songs from the Nutcracker play on loop throughout this movie. Uh, The product placement was easily my favorite product play. Not since A Christmas Melody taught us that Folgers is the best part of waking up. Have we had this kind of product placement? We don't have it at all in the movie. Like, you don't notice it. And then, about an hour and a half in, uh, Petra is sitting at her desk talking to Nick, and she's wearing glasses. And, like, admittedly, like, they're pretty funky glasses. Like, Petra's kind of a very stylish woman for a woman of her age. But, you know, she's a party planner in New York City, so she's going to be pretty chic. And she's talking to Nick. And she stops talking. And she removes her very stylish glasses. And rather than the camera staying on her face, the camera basically pans down as she puts her glasses on their case, which I am happy to tell you are from VisionWorks. I know this because the camera lingers on the box and brand name for about four seconds, just to make sure you knew where to get those glasses if you chose to. Uh... No children in this movie. Like, there's children in the background, but none specific that we have to worry about. Ice skating, we do get. (laughs) Because, um, as you do, like, when you're an actual New Yorker, uh, you know, he says uh, at one point he's going out with his yoga girlfriend and says, yeah, no, we're going out. She's like, oh, what are you guys doing? He's like, ice skating, Rockefeller. As if, like, that's what people say. And they don't say that. Like, as a New Yorker, I can tell you they don't. Uh, So, with all those points, this ends up being the best Christmas party ever, obviously. Uh, Do I recommend it? I kind of do if you want one of these that is going to make you laugh. The earnestness of it, no. Like, this isn't um, actually sweet or really, uh, like... You're not going to actually get involved in it, I don't think. But this one just hits on these tropes and all of the 
really mushy cliches so hard that it's kind of worth watching if you're in the mood for a funner one of these where you don't have to worry about it not being bad enough or not being uh, interesting enough. Like, this one is visually fun to watch because it's it goes for it. It goes for many things and it achieves them whether it intended to or not. So that was the best Christmas party ever. You heard the facts. It is a 20 out of 10. What more can I say?